0: Back chat. Back chat. Back chat. Politics and current affairs. Back chat. Back chat. Your alternative to talk back. That's right. Indeed, you are listening to Back Chat on FBI Radio, your freshest wrap of news and current affairs. I'm Swetha Das. And I'm Shami Sivas of Ramanien.
1: Oh, a show we have for you That's this week, Right? Goodness. We all know that the Democrats are debating, the swimmers are doping, and now Trump's asylum-seeking ban has been thrown out by federal court judges. But as always, this morning we're going to be giving you the news you might not have heard on your airwaves this
0: week. That's right. First up, we have Dr. Deborah Bateson, the medical director of Family Planning New South Wales. She's going to be speaking to us about the move by cross-party politicians to overturn New South Wales's outdo- outdated abortion laws and the ways in which this will impact the lives of people with uteruses across the country.
1: After that we'll be speaking to Liz Adore, Australia's only relationship coach and sexuality advisor working with people with intellectual and learning disabilities about the ways in which sex and disability intersect.
0: Finally we're going to be hearing a package by reporter Izzy Phillips on the ways climate change is not only threatening our lives but also our emotional well-being. And and
1: as always, we want to hear from you, so tweet us at
0: Backchat FBI.
2: Backstabbing, beep, treacherous, beep, beep, she is. Thanks, Colin. Backchat, your alternative
3: to talkback.
1: Decriminalised abortion in New South Wales! Yippee! After countless attempts, we were never quite sure we would see it. But in an unprecedented show of support, the Reproductive Healthcare Reform Bill 2019. Featured the names of 15 MPs from five different
0: parties when it was introduced in Parliament this week the historic bill would remove abortion from the state's Criminal code and create a standalone health care Act to regulate the procedure dr Deborah Bateson the medical director of family planning New South Wales is here with us today to discuss the implications of the bill hi there Deborah
4: hi it's fantastic to be here
0: thank you for being here um, so the new bill proposed by independent MP Alex Greenwich aims to decriminalize abortion in New South Wales. If it becomes law, when would people be
4: able to access the procedure? So it's a really good question. So at the moment, actually, people can access an abortion, but it's al- almost all in private clinics. So you need money and you need to be living near a private clinic. And we know that this really disadvantages many women, those in rural and regional areas, and women with little financial means. So we've got to make sure that we actually have equity in access to abortion and we have it publicly funded as well.
1: So how is the procedure currently administered in Australia? Is yes. the private sector? So,
4: yeah, so look, it does vary across the different states because we've got different laws in different states, so that makes it very challenging. Uh, but in New South Wales at the moment... Uh, a doctor does have to make that decision for a woman <laughs> so, and has to decide uh, that it's in her best interest uh, in terms of her, her uh, physical and mental health, uh, that it would be to not continue the pregnancy, so that it's not her decision to make. So she obviously can say, look, I want an abortion, but the doctor has to, has to decide that's what, what's going to happen. So we want to remove that because we know this is a decision that a woman can make herself. Uh, so at the moment, a woman does need to, if to, uh, she's made that decision she's got an unintended pregnancy, she does need to, to generally go to a private clinic and it can be a cost of somewhere between $400 but more money than that as well and that's up front so this can be really challenging for people uh, and as I say we need to remove it, it's 119 years old this law and we've come a long way since then <laughs> and it's just absolutely time that uh, we gave women you know the respect and dignity and autonomy that is rightfully ours of course.
0: Absolutely, so- Deborah, you were telling me that you've been at Family Planning New South Wales for 20 years. Oh, yes, yes, yes. (laughs) So you've you've really seen how far we've come with um, the abortion care. Yes. Um, Could you tell us
4: um, how... What kind of changes have you seen when it comes to it in the past So I think decade? one of the key things that's happened and it happened in 2012, thanks to Tanya Pribasek, is the introduction of medical abortion. Mm. So uh, there's a woman who's decided to have an abortion, and, and hopefully it'll be decriminalised, um, she, can, she can decide between either a surgical abortion, uh, which is a small procedure, uh, usually under just a light, light anaesthetic, or she can have medical abortion if, it's, uh, if she's up to nine weeks of, of pregnancy. Uh, and that means taking tablets, so there's two lots tablets that, that you take and they're generally taken at home so it's like having a, a miscarriage so that's a big big change but we know that actually it's not still not as accessible as we'd like it to be so we know that gps for instance can potentially uh, deliver medical abortion but we know because of the stigma because of the the grayness around the laws yeah. that that actually is a real disincentive to people providing services because of that risk of criminalization both of women and of and of doctors okay. as well
1: Home Affairs Minister Peter Dutton has weighed in on the debate in New South Wales, saying that 22 weeks is far too late for the procedure to take place. What are your thoughts on this, Deb?
4: So I think this has really taken hold in the the media (laughs) lately. So I think the key thing is that... 94% 94% of abortions uh, occur under 14 weeks. So it's very, very rare. In fact, we think it's less than 1% of abortions occur after 20 weeks and, and even fewer after 22 weeks. And these are always very, very complex situations. Either it's because there's a devastating fetal diagnosis because we know that women who are, have a wanted pregnancy, they don't get that what we call a morphology scan until 18 to 20 weeks of, of pregnancy. So, and then, of course, they need to wait for results. They may be, need to have a repeat scan. They need to consult with people. And so, you know, that means that, that they may be uh, needing to have an abortion at a late stage. But other cases are, you know, very severe uh, maternal uh, health conditions or, or very difficult social conditions. And it's always, always uh, taken very very seriously a multidisciplinary team with social workers uh, everyone helping to support the woman at this very very difficult time so i think it's really important uh, this bill has been drafted with great care mm-hmm. it mimics the queensland uh, legislation uh, and it, you know i think it's it's a very um, sensible sound bill that's in keeping with with uh, you know excellent medical practice
0: so you know you're saying it's a sensible bill there's medical backing why is this
4: bill so polarizing yes look i think abortion is continues to be a polarizing issue mm. uh, and you know we have to uh, acknowledge that uh, but obviously it's just great that we're talking about it it's excellent that you know I'm going on radio programs like yours and mainstream radio programs to talk about it so I think that you know we are destigmatizing by doing this so I think it is it can be a polarizing issue but people are now talking about it and I think a lot of that is actually people don't really understand what's involved in terms of, of an abortion and did, in fact we know that 70, uh, 70% of people think that it should be decriminalised, but a lot of people, until this debate now, didn't realise it was actually a cr- in the Crimes Act, yeah. didn't realise. And, and we know that a woman was criminally prosecuted just a, a couple of years ago.
1: So the Australian Medical Association has expressed its support for the new bill, uh, but do you think that the rest of the medical community will get on board?
4: Look, I think there's been incredibly strong support from across the across the board with the medical profession. So the Royal Australian New Zealand College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists, mm-hmm. for instance, has been very uh, vocal and supportive. Uh, I know I work with the College of GPs uh, on a special interest group looking at uh, me- how to improve access to medical abortion. I think there's, you know, and the AMA, the Australian Medical Association, have shown that support. So I think there is very strong support because as doctors and other health professionals, of course, nurses and midwives and, and, uh, you know, all sorts of health workers, we see women uh, who have made that decision to have an abortion, always made, you know, never made lightly. uh, And we see the challenges that are, you know, uh, that lack of access causes for for women and, and want to change that.
0: You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio 94.5 FM with Shami and Swetha. We're speaking with Dr Deborah Bateson, the Medical Director of Family Planning New South Wales, discussing the recently tabled reproductive health care reform bill. Now, Deb, why do you think it's taken New South Wales so long
4: to catch up with the rest of Australia when it comes to reproductive healthcare reform? Look, I think it's very challenging, isn't it? Yeah. So, and, and, and I must say, whenever I talk to people, they say, I can't believe we're later than Queensland. <laughs> so I think now we have to do it. Yeah. Look, it's a very good question, isn't it? And, and you know, I do take my hat off to the you know the current government now and, and showing that support. So it, it's hard to say. It just hasn't happened. We know that there have been attempts before and they haven't gone through. Uh, but I think now we you know it's going to it's going to work. So I think you know rather than looking backwards, I think we now need to look forwards uh, and say, look, let's we've got all this cross party support. Uh, let's make it happen now,
0: Deb. Like you've worked so deeply on this issue. I'd love to know from your
4: personal experiences how much would this mean to women in New South Wales? Oh, it would be enormous. <laughs> it would mean a huge amount. When I think of all the women, the countless women that I've actually seen, uh, to you know, they've often made a decision, but it's about giving support, giving information, giving factual information. Uh, but and sometimes, you know, with our social workers as well, seeing women talking with women who, you know, just have found themselves in such difficult situations, and sometimes they haven't been able to access the abortion that they want to access. Uh, it will mean enormous amount to those women, it'll mean, and I know many of those women will just be so delighted if it goes through to know what it's going to do for other women who've been in their predicament and I think all of, all the countless colleagues who've been working on this for decades, so uh, yesterday I was actually at a conference and I met a marvellous woman called Margaret Sparrow I think she's 89 now she's actually a New Zealander but she's been working, you know, and similar things are happening in New Zealand there are people who've been working for decades and people will just be, you know just overjoyed <laughs> because it's all about women's women's autonomy and women's rights. Absolutely. Before we let you go, Deborah, uh,
1: where can our listeners go for help if they need rep- reproductive health care?
4: Yeah, so so look, it depends where you look. You can go to your GP, of course. So that's always a, a first port of call, just to say there's also family planning services, of course. Uh, and, you know, there are different centres around the place. We've got one in Dubbo and Newcastle and Ashfield. But we've also got a talk line. So it's a, a, a telephone service. So people can ring up, uh, ring up the telephone service and then we can give you information. What people don't realise is to go to a private clinic, you don't actually need a referral. You can just ring yourself. But it's sometimes useful just to, to have a chat to someone, find out their information, get a few facts. So I think you know, the family planning clinics and talk line are uh, an excellent place to start as well as your GP.
1: Thank you so much for chatting to us this morning, Deborah. Some very, very interesting information, and My very pleasure. valuable information. Thank you so much. That was Dr. Deborah Bateson, the medical director of Family Planning New South Wales, discussing the recently tabled reproductive healthcare reform bill.
0: Stay tuned because we'll be moving along to our next interview with Liz Daw, a sexuality advisor, to speak to us about the ways in which sex and disability intersect. But now here's White Mustang
1: by Lana Del Rey.
5: The Australian taxpayer even pays for the toilet paper she uses. Does she go down to the chemist to buy the tampons? Or is the Australian taxpayer paying
2: for those as well?
0: Fact Chat, your alternative to TalkBack. Most of us can admit that dating and everything that goes with it is a tricky business at the best of times, but for young people with intellectual or learning disabilities, the challenges and stigma surrounding dating and relationships can be overwhelming.
1: Liz Dorr is a relationship coach and sexuality advisor on a mission to break the taboos around love and relationship for everyone. She's the only coach of her kind in Australia, and a documentary following her work will air on SBS soon. Hi, Liz. Hello. Uh, Thank you for joining us today.
2: That's fine. I'd love to get the word out that people with disabilities have the same needs and feelings and attraction as everybody else.
1: Wonderful. So, to go further into that, what exactly does your work involve, Liz?
2: Well, a whole range of things, but usually it's around friendships first and finding out who they're friends with and who they see at the moment. I also, for the young ones, it's about puberty and where they're up to in in that area. And then I do a timeline activity and find out, well, this where you're living. Could be with parents or um, in a group house and what do you want in the future? And inevitably, everybody wants to move out to live with a friend or have a partner.
1: So the sexuality of people with disabilities is not something that's often discussed and it's a big part of what you do. Uh, so, so why is that, that people don't talk about it enough and what can we do to defeat the stigma around sexuality, especially in the disability space?
2: People often think that people with disabilities are like eternal children and so they, you know, don't want to talk to them about sex when that's such an adult thing. But I always Ask them if their child or the people they're working with, if they think they've got underarm hair or pubic hair. And if they have, then they've got the same desires. And learning about sex uh, is essential to safety as well. Knowledge is power and awareness about um, libido or unsafe behaviours of others towards them and how to say no and how to get help is really important, as well as having their own fulfilled um, relationship and possibly sexual relationship.
0: What are some of the distinct challenges that people with disabilities face when it comes to dating and intimacy?
2: Uh, prejudice by those around them is, is one, uh, therefore not having opportunities to meet people. They might start going online, those who are on the autism spectrum, looking for people online, but that's a really difficult, challenging thing uh, because you come across slightly differently. However, I coach them about just going to a coffee shop during the day, just meeting for a coffee. However, the events that I hold are a safe place for them to meet other people to be introduced. Or if they come on their own, then I give them advice about which meet-up groups or which hobby groups are out there and that might be a good place to go and join and meet people and make friends.
1: You mentioned um, the world of online. So how do people with disabilities navigate the the new world of dating apps? Is that something you broach?
2: I do. People with physical disabilities use online dating and do that very successfully. People on the autism spectrum um, sometimes can't express their emotions as well as other people and might take something said in typed word more literally than um, it might have been intended. So for those who want to do that, that's okay, but I just give them some coaching around it and suggest they actually try other uh, methods first. If they like singing, join a singing group. If they like gardening, then join one of the the community gardening groups and get that social interaction happening, the banter that we all start conversations with and practice that first.
0: You're listening to Back Chat on FBI Radio ninety-four point five FM with Shami and Swetha. We're speaking with Liz Daw, a relationship coach who works with differently abled people about overcoming the barriers to finding love. Now Liz, how do family members of people with learning and intellectual disabilities play a role in their relationships?
2: If you think about your own families, they're really important when you have a relationship. There's always the, you know, introductions and how will everyone feel about your partner. But it's different for those that I work with because um, it's the parents who often take the step forward and ask that I give their children, their adult children or teenage children, some support because they can see it, social functions, they're not so confident or that they're eyeing people, um, you know, doing what teenagers do and chatting up the um, the waitress in the coffee shop. So they're, they're ready and the pets lots of parents recognize that rather than squashing it they just want to direct it um, so that their child will have success.
1: So Liz your work undoubtedly relies on trust and openness between yourself mm. and the people that you work with so how do you approach discussions about sex and sexuality whilst eliminating any discomfort that they might feel?
2: Well, after I've found out what they do want in their life, if they want an intimate relationship, then I ask them can i I do a quiz with them, which is actually an assessment of uh, sexuality, knowledge, and awareness. But if they consent to doing that quiz, then I ask in a really you know school teachery way, I suppose, what they know about sex and um just go through the quiz and then I know where the gaps in knowledge are and so it might be do you want to learn more about uh, consent or safe sex or gay and lesbian relationships and we go from there.
0: Just as a last question, Liz, we'd love to ask, you know, what are the holes in the resources the government provides to people with disabilities when it comes to dating, sex and intimacy?
2: Hmm. I think they're doing quite well at the moment. I'd like to congratulate them. I think people are complaining about the NDIS, but um, in this particular area, um, it's it's been there's more funding now than there was before because people tended to focus on where's the person going to live, where are they going to work, or what program are they going to go to, who's going to teach them to um, cook and get to work, and not even considered the relationships, counselling, or coaching, or the social groups. Which has now been put on the agenda, as because they're asked about the different areas of their life. So I think that's a good thing that relationships and sexuality is being acknowledged by the government.
1: Well, thank you so much for being with us, Liz. It's a very interesting topic. We'd love to continue this conversation, but alas, we'll that's all the time we have.
2: Thank you. Bye.
1: Bye. Um, that was Liz door, a relationship coach uh, and sexuality advisor who works with differently abled people talking to us about the obstacles that come with finding love uh, in the disability community. You can watch the documentary about Liz's work uh, on the 7th of August on SBS. It's called Untold Australia.
0: Love me as I am. Next up, we've got a story from comedian Izzy Phillips about the growing anxiety about climate change that can often tip into grief and even mourning.
6: I found out recently that this thing that keeps happening to me has a name. It happens occasionally when I'm not expecting it. Sometimes I'll be going about my normal day and I get this pang of overwhelming sadness hit me when I think about the climate emergency. The way I would describe this feeling resembles being winded. It's the feeling you get when you think of someone who's passed away and you relive that moment of shock when you realize that they aren't with you anymore. This is how I feel when I think about our planet. I think about all of the plastic toothbrushes I've used in my lifetime and how each toothbrush will outlive me in landfill. But the thought that strikes me above all is that no matter what solution I think up, nothing... Feels great enough to solve all of our environmental issues. This feeling I'm describing is called climate grief, and it's something Dr. Beth Hill from Psychology for a Safe Climate has been researching.
5: I would define climate grief as the experience of a whole series of different emotions that people are having in response to what they see as the ecological and some social crisis affecting our planet already and the kind of crisis to come that's connected to climate change. So these might be feelings like sadness, anger, despair, depression, fear, anxiety, um, a sort of anticipatory grief, thinking about what might be lost.
6: Ange Collins is a playwright based in Sydney who also experiences the feeling of climate grief. For Ange, these feelings started to manifest in a physical way when she was thinking about the state of our planet.
5: My experience of climate grief, it's often partnered with feelings of panic and anxiety. So I might get, like, head spins, I want to cry, can't concentrate on what I'm doing, whether I'm at work or trying to write.
6: For many young people, climate action is a top priority – And there's a good reason for this. Tim Baxter is a senior researcher from the Climate Council, Australia's leading climate change communications organisation who provide advice on climate change based off the most up-to-date science. I spoke to Tim about some of the impacts we'll be experiencing over the next few years under the climate emergency. And when I was hearing Tim talk about the things that are going to happen, I couldn't help but feel anxious.
3: The leading cause of death in Australia from a natural hazard is heatwave, especially in our cities, but everywhere. Heatwave is also easy to predict under climate change. We can see very, very clearly in pretty much everything that we do around climate change that heatwaves are going to get longer, they're going to get more severe, and they're going to get more intense. And while we're in winter at the moment, we are still already seeing that heat increase. So while it may feel very cold for you when you're walking to the train station in the morning and your fingers and toes are going numb, it's actually quite a bit hotter than it should be across large swathes of the country.
6: Although there will be devastating impacts to our planet, there still is a way forward.
3: There are two paths that we have ahead of us. We have that scary, awful, and we also have a pretty decent future that we can aim towards. That's a future that is powered by renewables. That's a future where we've shifted our transport systems so that it's no longer powered by fossil fuels. The only way we get to that decent world is through people getting involved and getting active.
6: For climate experts like Beth and Tim, Action is at the centre of everything. Action is where we fight climate change and our feelings of grief and anxiety. Action provides hope. Here's Beth Hill again.
5: I think hope is really important, but I think hope is different maybe from what we tend to think of when we talk about hope. Hope is not sitting and and hoping everything will be okay and, and wishing it to be so. It's not optimism and it's not passive. Hope is something that... I experience in my own life through taking action. You know, I take action as a form of hope. And I think you need to possibly not put hope in opposition with despair. Like, I think it's possible to feel climate grief, to feel the despair of what's happening to our planet, and to hope that a a better world can come out of it. And action, I think, can look a lot of different ways. It doesn't always look like going to protests. You know, action might be taking the time to really talk to somebody that you care about, about how you really feel about climate change. That, to me, is a form of action. It might be a process of reflection for yourself. Action can look a lot of different ways.
6: If you do find yourself in the depths of despair, it's important to remember that there is progress and things are happening. The United Kingdom has just signed a new bill to decarbonize by 2050 and it looks like other countries are lining up to do the same. New Zealand announced the ban of all single-use plastic bags and we have amazing youth action here in Australia. Above all, remember to act now, because in action there is hope. And hope is a powerful emotion, one that is strong enough to make change. Do what you can to fight the climate crisis because if we all work together and do what we can, there will be no need for us to grieve our amazing planet.
0: That was the phenomenal Izzy Phillips bringing us a story about the implications and causes of climate grief.
1: Well, that's all we've got time for today on our show. Another big thank you to our producers, Eden Faithful, Natalie Sekulowska and Pip Leeson. And thanks again
4: to our guests, Dr. Deborah Bateson, Liz Dorr.